Turn off the light when you leave. In Finland, there was an old but still inhabited yellow apartment suited in a small city near an important well. Almost all the people living there are over 70 years old, and in fact, it seems that younger people simply won't stay there for longer than a year. If you live there, you will notice several unusual things. In the basement, the text, turn on the light, turn off the light when you leave, is written next to every light switch. It's unusual to remind somebody of something so obvious, but there is, but there is a critical importance. People who forget something in the basement never return to pick it up. If you do offer to go down there and retrieve it for them, they will stop you from doing so. There was a door there between some storage doors that had no numbers on them. Instead, the door has a worn-out name pattern on it. The people in the flat will tell you that you to leave that door alone. It said people have peeked in the keyhole and have seen very unsettling things. The wires and pipes in the basement look amazingly old. It's still, the house has perfectly functioning water, electricity, and phone lights. The laundry room, which is in the basement, must be reserved if you want to use it. If you go to bed with reserving a time first, you will at first get weird looks and some scolding, and people will ominously and angrily warn you. Things may seem minor, but those unusually, the young ones, who have got two cares or failed to follow the rules have ended up either dead, crippled, or insane. Usually people say that these incidents were the result of drug use or alcoholism, but some freak accidents can't be explained by anything. How do I notice? I used I used to go and help my grandmother who lived in that apartment, and I have seen several at times how ambulance have dragged away young people who have missed an arm, sometimes other parts also. The worst case was when I found a corpse that looked like an explosive victim in the laundry room. His guts were spewed all over the room and his arm left sitting on top of the washing machine. Before her death, my grandmother told me that she knows what's behind those incidents. After the Second World War, there was a sort of apartment, and one war veteran who had lost his left arm was given the was given a mandatory room in the basement for no cost if you would help people do the laundry and help the janitor. He did, but eventually someone insulted him one way or another. The veteran killed that youngster in himself. He ever since his spirit has been there. He sleep punished in those who failed to follow the rules of his home. After telling this, she told me that I should never ever return to the apartment as I knew too much. After I left the apartment for the last time, I could see a figure of an old, old man missing his left arm staring at me, reflecting on a large glass panel on the door of the stairway. Mr. Ghost, in the spring of 1953, when I was nine years old, I saw my brother die. I'll remember that day for the rest of my life. The memory has never left me, and it never will. Part of it was the trauma, the slow, insidious realization that he was gone, that crept into my life afterward. But there is more to that that I don't talk about. I've held on to it for years, and I don't want to hold on to it any longer. It was the 10th of April. School had just finished, and Charlie and I were walking home like we always did. Those were the good times. Mom always had a snack waiting for us. Get her cookies and milk. 
Charlie was the kind of kid with a smile that could light up a room. He was a year above me, but he seemed to be full of more energy than I could muster. Outside we played superheroes like the ones in the comic books. He was our Captain America, and I was Bucky Barnes with loud ginger hair, freckled and sparkling eyes. He didn't look much like a superhero, but he so knew the part well. After our snack, he'd grab the garbage can lid and I'd grab my BB gun and we'd go out and fight the bad guys on the front lawn. We'd been hoping to play like that when we got home and Charlie was ahead of me, looking back and yelling for me to keep up. Come on, Felix. I was waiting. I remember the smile on his face. I remember seeing that green 1953 Chevy Corvette around the corner behind him as it came barreling down the road. For a moment, I didn't think much of it. Why should I have? The Corvette set of passed us by with no issue. So, it was going a little fast, but there sort of been nothing to worry about. Charlie turned to look as he heard the scream of rubber on asphalt. I can only imagine he was a man the Corvette. He used to think they were the coolest. When I heard the bang of a tower, I didn't know what it was. First, the plume of debris was a little shocking, and it sat me. Just long enough to realize that the Corvette was headed our way. I caught a glimpse of the driver's face, which had been frozen into a panicked look as he tried to regain control of the car. Charlie didn't even have time to move. The Corvette jumped the curb, hitting him head on. He was thrown back like a toy as the Corvette went over the sidewalk and down into a saddle ditch beside its bearing underneath it. I felt nothing but the wind as it sailed past me and heard nothing but the scrape of metal. Tossed my backpack on the ground, I ran towards the wicked to tend to my brother. I could still see his face, contorted into a mask of agony. The Corvette was crossing his lower half, and you could he- and you could tell he was in pain from his screams. The screams haunt me to this day. I was unable to speak. I was... His... Tender... Hell was made speaking almost useless. I stole a glimpse inside the sports Corvette. The windshield was cracked, and I saw blood. Which I was helping us anytime soon. Felix? I could hear his voice fragile in pain. Help, please. The, te- the tears streamed down his cheeks, and I didn't want to leave him, but I knew there was no choice. I ran back up to the side of the world and looked for a passing car, some, somebody to help us. Anybody moments ago that had been caught other cars on the street, but now nobody was gone. The world seemed dimmer. The sunlight seemed to be cutting through a thick fog that had not been there before. There was no sound other than Charlie's screams, which quickly subsided into whimpers. I looked around frantically. In, in, in the distance, I could see a figure in the fog. I waved at him and yelled, Hey, mister, we need help, please. The figure in the distance didn't come any faster. I called out for him again, waving my arm to grab his attention. So, so fast, we need help. I looked down at Charlie. He was so horribly pale, his hands on the grill of the crashed Corvette that pinned him. From behind me, I heard a high and squeaky voice. Well, I thought a better of a predicament. I jumped, in, I jumped and looked in the direction of the voice. It was a man from the distance. How had he gotten here so fast if I walk and had he run towards us when I wasn't looking? He was dressed in all black, a heavy black coat, a black fedora, and a black leather gloves. He looked like a businessman on his way home for work. 
Sarah? I said in my sickening voice, please, you need to call somebody, a hospital, something. The man laughed. It was such a carefree sound and assured me of rage. How can you be laughing at a moment like this? Well, my dear boy, a hospital won't save you for now. Oh, no. I'm afraid he's a little too injured for that. What do you mean? I asked, panicked. Well, you're afraid that he'll die, I'm afraid, the man said. But that's why I'm here. He extended a gloved hand towards me. I didn't take it. All I could do was stare. When I didn't move, he put my soldier and bust past me, making his way down the death ditch and towards the car, casually moving casually as the talking quiet help didn't meant nothing to him. I didn't have the capability to speak, trying to process all that he said. I wasn't sure if this man was sane or sincere. He knelt down beside my brother, his smile carefree and infectious. Don't worry, my dear boy, he said, caressing Charlie's forehead. And just like that, he stopped his tormented shrieks. His body went limp, and he let out an almost relaxed sigh. There, there. Let's get you out of this awful place. The man grabbed Charlie by his arms and gave him a soft pull. I opened my mouth to protest, but before I could say anything, the deed was done. Charlie had been pulled from under the car in one piece. He was standing, standing like nothing happened. I called his name and reached out. To hug him, but the man stood between the block in my way. I can't let you do that. He warned me. I'm sorry. Why? I begged. It wasn't turned solemn. You weren't supposed to be here. My work isn't exactly for prying eyes, but here you are all the same. I don't question the why of it. Sometimes these things just happen. And there is purpose in everything. Besides, I really don't mind the company, but I can't allow you to touch him. He's no longer of your world. Charlie didn't say anything to me. He didn't even look at me. His eyes had a dead, ignorant look to him. The man brushed past me and opened the door with a phone call. He thrust his hand in and poured the drive from his seat. He was only a teenager, but I was horrified when I saw him. His neck was bent in an impossible anger. I could see bone pressed against the skin. His neck had to have been broken. He shouldn't have been alive. The man remained indifferent to the seemingly fatal wound on the, on the driver and simply placed his hands on his cheek in a sudden mood, jerked his head back into place. There was a sickening crack. All better, he said sweetly enough to me. What? What's happened to me? I asked. He said that Charlie was going to die and that I was clearly dead too, but then if I was seeing him, was I also dead? Was he going to help me for seeing him, whatever exactly he is? Oh, I'm not going to hurt you. You're very much alive, Felix. He said and offered him a smile. I hadn't said anything to him. How did he know what I was thinking? I was too stunned to speak. Rarely do humans see me. They don't want to see me in what I do. What do you do? I asked, my voice shaking. It was just one of a million questions. Well, I'm something of a sofa, he said. He said, I pick up people and drop them off. I'll be picking you up one day, too. How, how do you know my name? 
I stammered. He didn't reply. He smiled and took us and took the hands of both Charlie and the Canadian driver. And don't worry about that. That won't be for a while. But now, I've got the one. I'm a very busy band, man. You know. With that, he led both Charlie and the driver back up the road. A black car was waiting there. It hadn't been there before. An older model. That later in life, I'd recognize as a 1935 Dutzenberg convertible. He put Charlie in the driver into the back seat before climbing behind the wheel. The last I saw of him was a friendly wave he gave me before he drove off. That was it. I sat, I sat down on the grass, my back to the car, and I started to cry. I looked down at where Charlie had been, and to my surprise, he was still there. But he wasn't screaming. He wasn't even moving. He lay there, pinned beneath the vehicle. But his eyes stemmed vacantly up into the sky. I was still in the ditch when the police came, and they took Charlie away. I remember watching them take the driver out of the car, too. His neck was broken the exact way it had been when the men had taken him out earlier. But no lights cracked his neck back into place. That The wound had been as fatal as I thought. I had no idea what... I'd witness until much later. Even today, I'm still not so. Every now and then, I'll be driving down the road and I'll see a car accident parked right beside the police car. It's a black Brunsberg convertible. I don't think anyone else sees it. Once I saw the same grand man and I swore he looked and winked at me. I've taken to referring him as Mr. Ghost. It's the only name the seat can fit the man. On the streets, sometimes I see a car driving, driving past. The ghost car, I assume, he's on his way to other business. People always die. You know, I've learned a lot about the world that day. Maybe more than most people know. I learned about the methods of death. But every day I wake up, I'm thankful not to see him standing over my bed. Hand extended. Carefully going on his face. I know that is what's going to happen one day, and I hope I'm ready when it does. Ghost train. The house I grew up was right next to a set of busy runner tracks. From my bedroom window, I could watch the train draw by. There were three types of trains that used and still do to this day. They were the long lumbering freight trains, pulling boxcars, flatbeds, and tankers, which I would try and count as they cluttered by. And there were the fast-moving computer trains of the Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, a.k.a. M-A-T-A-R-D-M, as some people called it. The Arcton passenger trains that would breeze by heading to and from the central station in the heart of the city. When most people see trains, they just see big machines falling down and moving to steel. But me, I saw them as symbols of freedom, in a way out of the hood. Whenever I saw a train, I would imagine all the places that it was going and coming from. Naturally, my favorite toy as a tyke were my Thomas the Tank Engine toys. I had all the characters, Thomas, Francie, Gordon, James, Toby, Dizzy, all of them. When I was 10, my grandparents bought me a Lowton train set for my birthday to me. 
of the best present ever. It consisted of a steam engine and four passenger cars. There was even a little bottle of draft you would put in the smokestack that allowed the engine to make smoke. I'd spend hours watching that toy train around, run around in an oval, pretending it was real, and that I was driving the locomotive through forests, past fields, across mountains, and past small towns. I eventually developed other interests, namely girls, but I still never lost my interest for trains. When I got older, I applied for a job as an engineer trainee on MATA and got and got it. For me, it was a dream come true. After I took the required classroom course and exams, I seen found myself riding in the cab of a silk di- diesel engine that pulls the computer trains. Now, the way the training program was set up was that they'd have you ride the different lines for the system for a few months with the engineer. I'll be on one line for a few weeks, and I'll be assigned to another line in order to be familiar with the different routes. The M was eight routes, all numbered. The main line was line one, and all the branch lines were line two, line three, and so on. I started on line seven the first few weeks before being moved to line eight. Now line eight, or the Cloverton line, as it is sometimes called, was one of the longest branch lines on the system, second only to line two, aka the middle sport line. The first time I rode on line eight, I was with a veteran engineer named Hank. Now Hank had been with the company from the beginning. When the old railroads decided they wanted out of the money losing computer machine and handed all of their locomotives and rolling stock to matter. We had the night owl service, which starts at 7 p.m. and ends at 5 in the morning. We picked up our first passengers at Central Station and were soon on our way to Cloverton. As we were going down the track, Hank turned to me and said, There's something you should know if you're going to be working on this railroad. Especially if they decide to put you here on line 8, once they make you an official engineer. I looked at him and said, oh, and what's that? Hank paused to blow the horn across and then said, this line is haunted. I replied, haunted? How is the line haunted? Hank looked at me and said, it supposedly started with a curse. Back in the late 1800s. And one of the old railroad companies was building the line. The company built the line across the edge of an old farm that belonged to a man named Ezra Gray without his permission. Ezra demanded that the railroad remove the tracks from his property and relay them somewhere else. But the railroad refused, due to a cost and too much time and money to do so. Mr. Gray would try to sue the railroad, but was unsuccessful. You see, railroads were quite powerful back in those days, and the railroads had a lot of politicians and judges in their pockets. To add insult to injury, Ezra not only had to pay the court costs, but had to pay the railroad as well for all the money they spent on the legal prosecutions. This bankrupt Ezra, and he was forced to sell his farm. Thus, 
minus the small patch of land that the church had built on. And Ezra Gray vowed to get more than one way or another. When the line opened up, Ezra stood on the tracks in front of the first train. The engineer tried to stop in time, but Ezra was hit anyway. Before he died, Ezra cursed the line, saying that it would bring death and sorrow ever since. There was a lot of mishaps and accidents on these tracks, and many people lost their lives. I didn't believe that some of those who died haunt various spots and that a few on the trains that crashed over the edge came back as ghost trains. Now rolling along these very railroads we are on now. I looked at Hank as he blew the horn for another crossing. Have you seen any ghost trains on this line? I asked. Plenty, he said. I've seen everything from headless trainmen to phantom lights and ghost trains. I didn't believe him at first, but didn't say anything. We eventually came to a curve in the track, and when we came out of it, I saw something that made my blood freeze. Coming at us was a headlight of another train. Hank, for God's sakes, man, put the brakes on. I started. Don't you see the other train coming away? Hank responded, Yeah, I see it. Don't worry, we're fine. I looked and screamed at I looked at Hank and screamed, Are you crazy? We're gonna die. Hank just pointed straight ahead and said, No, we're not. Get a good look at the train. I did, and I saw that not only did the incoming train engine have the shape of one of the older type diesels, like seeing photos movies and TV shows from the 50s and 60s, but it seemed to be a transparent saddle with a headlight and lit and lighted cab windows. What the? I started to say, but then the saddle train hit us. Well, not hit us exactly, more like passed through us. Our whole cab was surrounded by shadows and streaks of light as it looked as what looked to be a passenger train passed through us, and I swear I saw the pale, wispy figures of people sitting in the seats. As soon as it was gone, the cab and our engine returned to normal. What the hell was that? I exclaimed. Hank turned to me and said, That was another ghost train that I was talking about. Well, well, that's the story with that ghost train, I asked. Hank sighed and said, well, it all happened shortly after Matter was established and took over the commenter rail line and even an inbound train had just decided the long grade we're on right now when it lost control and ran away. All down here before crashing and pulling up on the curve at the bottom. Everyone aboard was killed. And the cause of the wreck was blamed on the aging equipment Matter was using back then. Heck, with only a few exceptions, most of the engines Matter got from the old railroad were 25 to 30 years old. And about 30% of them, and, and about 30% of the coaches. You used to in that. 
Not long afterwards, the ghosts of that train started making appearances along this stretch of track, becoming one of several ghost trains that haunt these railways. I looked at him, then out the front of the window of the engine. What about the people back in the cars? Do you think they just saw what we saw? I asked. Hank shrugged and said, Probably, but I'm sure most of them are used to it. So I wouldn't worry too much. Our conductor probably taking care of things right now. We continued on to Calvinton and arrived on time. We made runs back and forth all night and several times I saw some of the scary things Hank told me about. I was relieved when we finally tied up in the yard, leaving the coaches on one side of the track and putting the engine in the roadhouse. The next few nights, however, were held. Every night when I would, I had at least a few creepy encounters along line eight. All of them with Hank. We just shrugged them off as if they were nothing. But I guess after nearly 40 years, none of the ghosts bothered him anymore. After a few days, I was put on the day once, which was a relief to me. And I didn't have to worry about seeing ghost trains or headless train men again. I eventually became a regular engineer and was put on the main line one. I'm pretty content, but if the big wings for the M ever decide to put me on line 8 night our service, I'll quit. Henry, the rain beat a steady rhythm on the asphalt. In the dark sky above, the rumble of distant thunder rode slowly towards us. Daniel? The sound of my name pulled me from my revenue. I turned my head away from the giant playground and toward Mrs. Watson. Are you with us? She asked, resting a hand on the edge of my desk. I nodded unconsciously, my head a million miles away. I looked at her watch on her left wrist. It was a beautiful timepiece. A circular face surrounded by a gold bezel with a wide two-tone bracelet. Fine golden hands pointed, pointed to the time. Just a little past 4 p.m. It will be another half hour before I can escape. Daniel, she chimed again. Yes, I answered quickly, looking up. Yes, I... I... Repeated somewhat sheepishly. The corner of Mrs. Watson's mouth upward into a slight smile as she moved back toward her desk. My sole companion sitting at the desk next to me Waved a finger, mocking a scolding. I ignored her as my eyes drifted back outside. Dark, dreary, and wet. It was a perfect metaphor for Friday afternoon detention. I tried to force my attention back toward my math textbook, but I found myself unable to concentrate. Miss Watson, Emma, my my detective buddy wheeled. Can I go yet? Unwilling. To try and force myself through my next math problem, I focused on Mrs. Watson instead. I assumed she had to be somewhere around 40, judging by the laughter lines tugging at the corner of her eyes and the faint wrinkles on her brow. She was an attractive woman, tall, fit, with dark brown haircut, short. Her jaw was pronounced giving her the look of a fighter while she had always been kind of patient with me. She could be fearful and angry. She tapped the face of her watch in response to Emma's question. 
Mr. Dawes made it clear to me that you were to remain in detention until four. It's nearly four now. And when it's exactly four, you may go. Miss Watson looked at me and I flushed as my gaze lingered too long. On her. I looked down at my textbook. She approached. How are you finding these? She asked quietly. Fine. I lied. I was a small kid, but always struggled with numbers. I had flunked the previous night's homework so badly that Miss Watson had placed me in the tent so I could catch up. I watched as she traced a finger down my work. So far, good, she said, but slow. I was expecting you to have completed this before Emma's scream pierced the classroom. Both Miss Watson and I jumped as one Emma Dainly, Miss Watson shouted, quickly beginning her composure. What do you think you're doing? Emma raised a shaky hand but said nothing. I watched my teacher's soft expressions softened. Emma? What is it? I looked out to the dock and playground, expecting to see someone staring through the window. But there was no one there. Emma? Miss Watson placed a hand on my pupil's Soda. I saw Henry. Emma squeaked. I felt I felt myself swallow hard. Oh, for the love of some of Miss Watson's fire return. Emma, I will not have you disrupt Daniel with some childish story. Saw him. Emma appeared. Watery eyes looked up at Miss Watson. I caught under the cabinet. Doubt flashed across Miss Watson's features for a brief second. She looked at her watch and then looked back at him with a heavy sigh. You may go, she said after a few seconds of deliberation. Emma, Emma didn't need a second invitation. She didn't bother packing her bag. She simply grabbed it. She simply grabbed it, her books, bottle, for the door. I listened to the fading footsteps fade as Emma raced down the tiled corridor. Henry? Miss Watson laughed softly as she sat on Emma's nighty desk. Not, not a bad way to buy yourself a couple of minutes out of detention, I suppose. I've heard other people say they've seen them too, I offered. Everyone had heard the stories. Miss Watson's smile was kind. I've been teaching here for nearly 20 years now, Daniel. The Henry story had been going well before I started. Don't let Emma's actions spook you. I never thought Emma to be clever enough to think of pulling such a stunt or talented enough to be so convincing. She seemed pretty sure I offered quietly trying to ignore a small flash of saying at 15. I was too old to be spooked by ghost stories. You don't believe her, do you? Miss Watson's tone suggested patience take with a hint of disappointment as if she expected more of me. Before I could deny anything, Miss Watson stood up and moved back forward to the front of the class. I watched as she fetched a long ruler from the holder beside the whiteboard. Cabinet, was it? I, 
I nod weakly. Okay, I'll chase our friend Henry, and then you can get back to your work. She said, pointing with the ruler and favoring me with a friendly wink. I nodded again as she knelt by the cannon. Henry, Miss Watson poked hard with ruler. Henry! I felt myself grow uneasy. I wanted to say that my teacher had proven her point that I was being silly and certain and should get back to my work. Miss Watson, I meekly, I said meekly, she turned to look at me. Miss Watson, I, the words died in my mouth with a whimper. Hand crept out from underneath the curtain, a pale white hand and nothing more. I was frozen in place as it scudded toward Miss Watson. Distracted by me, she did not see it as it crept towards her. The hand brushed her own. I couldn't see the surprise written on her face. Before she looked down slowly, there was no screaming. Miss Watson simply grabbed at the ruler dropped from her hand. She followed it down, slumping to the ground floor of the cabinet. Miss Watson, she didn't move. Her eyes were so tight. Sorry, I waved myself from my seat, trying to ignore the bell that began to rise in my throat. Miss Watson? I tried again, more feebly than before. Slowly, Henry clawed up Miss Watson's arm and onto her back. His pale form stood out starkly against the dark grey of her shoulder. I watched as he started moving toward her neck. Some unknown instinct kicked at me, then an unexplicable brief which suggested he meant my teacher harm. I was too afraid to move toward them. My mind screamed that I stood, but my legs would not respond. Instead, I lifted and, and heaved my textbook toward them. It sailed embarrassingly wide, landing with a heavy thud on the wall behind where Miss Watson laid. Henry turned at the sound and Scudded back toward the center of the cabin. I ran to Miss Watson's palm form. Miss Watson, Miss Watson, it was no good. She had fainted dead away. Her body limp as I shook her. From the shadows of the cabin, I could feel Henry watching me as I picked my teeth up and dragged her to the door. The candleman. Over the hill and through the mall. A candleman comes walking up to your door. He lights up the candle and walks to your bed. Leaves the candle in the window. He leaves with your head. That's the nursery rhyme. My grandma used to tell me when I was young. I remember that little rhyme terrifying me as a child as I cowered under the covers in the bed at a small country cottage too scared to sleep. She described him as a tall, pale man in a robe who liked to kill little children. And whenever he killed, Grandma would say in a hushed voice, He will leave a ghostly candle in the window. At that, she would yell out and make me jump back in fright while she shrieked with laughter. <laughs> the candleman! Even the name gives me chills. It seemed like such a horrible thing, a horrible, scary thing to say to a child. But then again, Grandma was a scary woman. She was small with withered skin and cool sunken eyes that seemed to glare at me. After Grandma died, 
She hardly even left the house, just sat in her rocking chair telling stories to other cameramen and taking delight in my fear, laughing madly when I jumped. I found her as a disgusting woman. Anyway, when growing up, I learned that it wasn't her fault, really. Grandpa's death had taken her up, messed with her head. She didn't know that it was appropriate anymore. Grandpa was only alive when I was a baby, and I never knew him, but I learned when I was older, how much he meant to Grandma. Without him, she had been broken. She died when I was 13. And I guess it didn't really come to me as much of a shock. She was incredibly old and frail. Now I'm 30 with a wife and a little girl. We have a comfortable suburban home I, and I couldn't be happier. There was one thing that is shaking me up recently. However, it's a silly thing. But it still scared the hell out of me. A nightmare. In a dream, I was in my bedroom, comfortably under the covers, when I heard a tune beginning to play on the piano down the stairs. I knew what it was beginning played as soon as I heard it. The candleman came from surrounding my arms and neck, and I filled my stomach. I sprinted down the narrow staircase into the living room, where I saw a, a tall, pale figure in a robe holding a candle, leaving through the open door the candle man. He was about six foot four or five with a dead looking bready eyes and a wide evil grin. I woke up suddenly in a coach that turned on the light and read until I was ready to sleep again. I put the dream down too too many drinks and the up coming of Halloween. It freaked me out anyway. And that takes me up Yesterday, Halloween night, I was trotting back from a party, not drunk, I don't drink, but still woozy from tiredness. I thrust my hands into my pockets for warmth. Whilst I was walking back through, through the crisp orange leaves, the poem of the Candleman popped into my head. My heart began to thud as I walked down the poorly lit street, leaving crunching under feet. The pale moon cast in long shadows along the path, and in my mind's eye, I could see the candleman, thin and ghostly, running up to me and cutting off my head in one swing of an axe. Silly, I know, but the dark can make my imagination run wild sometimes. I arrived on my road and, and began to come down. I felt silly for having let the poem get to me. I was perfectly safe under the streetlights. As I arrived in my front yard, I noticed a tall man in robe standing at the end of the street, his face shrouded in darkness. He appeared to be staring at me. Once again, image of the candleman flooded through my head, sending, a, sending my heartbeat into overdrive. I shook it off. It's just a man off a Halloween. Nothing, nothing to be scared of, I assured myself. As I attempted to, to slow my breathing, and I looked up at my house, hearing demonic laughter from the man's direction. An isolo of terror stabbed at my heart. There, in my daughter's bedroom, bedroom, flickering softly, was a candle.